Welcome to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. I'm Tracy Ainsworth from the University of New South Wales. In this podcast series, we will talk to marine experts about the marine environments that we have right on our doorsteps and what we can do to help conserve and protect these blue spaces. Welcome to Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. Today, it's really exciting. We have Professor John Bruno all the way from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, John is a professor of biology and uh, it's super exciting to have him here talking with us today. John, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Hey, Tracy, it's my pleasure. John, what I find absolutely fascinating about what you do is the Galapagos. It's it's like a dream for me, far off place that one day I hope to get to. And I remember even from being a kid wanting to go to the Galapagos and seeing your work has been just absolutely amazing to learn about how unusual that ecosystem is and the fact that there's corals and coral reefs there. Can you tell us a bit more about the coral reefs of the Galapagos? Yeah, it is a really unique and really odd system. Um, Like it's on the equator. The equator splits the islands, you know, more or less in half. Um, But yet the water is quite cold. So uh, in their cool season, which is like um, the North American um, summertime, so like June, July and August, it's down to like 16, 17 C. So I'm wearing like a seven mil, like semi-dry wetsuit, sometimes even with like a hood. Yeah, it's cold. And in this in their warm season, it only gets up to like 23, 24 usually. I mean, during an El Nino, it can get a lot warmer, but that's pretty uncommon. Um, and when you get in the water, it looks to me a lot like Southern California or like the Gulf of Maine off of New Hampshire, or it reminds me of like Tassie yeah. or even like fjords in New Zealand. It's all just like rocky bottom. It's like kind of volcanic rock because these are volcanic, volcanic islands, obviously. Um, and like pencil sea urchins are like 90% of the animal biomass and, you know, the alva is the dominant like algae when it's not being grazed, although grazing is really intense. Um, so it looks nothing like the tropical systems, you know, that we're both like used to working on. Yeah. And, um, it's also, it's more or less an intact food web. I mean, there's more fishing than you might expect. There's a lot of fishing for lobster and like these kind of grouper, groper, as you would say, like fishes called bacalao. Um, but there's not much fishing compared to like the places that we work. Um, and there's also l- obviously lots of big megafauna, you know, there's like orcas swim by sometimes when wow. they're coming out from a dive, there's lots of like humpback and blue whales and there's sea lions everywhere. So like every dive has like sea lions zooming by, wow. uh, just incredible densities of sea turtles and all this wildlife's really tame because, you know, the islands weren't inhabited until German farmers settled them, you know, uh, like 150 years ago or so. Um, and now there's obviously um, like native Galapagians, which are mostly Ecuadorians. So there's like people there now, but like most of the wildlife hasn't really evolved like that, that, you know, escape response. And so like the sea turtles are just like grazing and they eat macroalgae there. There's not mm-hmm. much seagrass. There's probably yeah. any seagrass. So they're like grazing macroalgae and you're like laying out a transect trying to like count urchins or do video transects or whatever. And you've got to like practically like kind of like move the turtle <laughs> out of the way because they're just so tame. They're like just like plopping down in the middle. Yeah. Wow. So it's 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 really cool to be at a place where there's megafauna, right? Because I yeah. mostly work in the Caribbean where like the biggest critter is like, you know, a little stunted juvenile lobster or something. There's just not a lot of like big animals left. So that that's the 
like most special thing about it for me is just to work in a place with like a, you know, quasi intact food web. Yeah. That's, um, that's an interesting comparison working in those two places. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And there's not much coral. So you asked about the corals. There's very little coral remaining. It was never like a coral reef because I mean, the the habitat is just created by, again, these volcanic rocks. There was like corals encrusting on them that certainly created like secondary habitats, you know, Postulopora, some encrusting parietids, no massive corals that I'm aware of. There's like some free living uh, fungid type of corals, but they were hit super hard, I believe in 88 by a mass bleaching event, um, which was like the one that Peter Glenn was really the first yeah. mass bleaching event documented in science. So Peter was working there in Costa Rica and other places in the Eastern Pacific and just saw like just mass die-offs of corals and they've never recovered. Um, you know, there's like tiny spots where there's like a little bit of recovery, but you know, it's like tens of square meters and like, you know, 10% coral cover, usually not nothing substantial. So there's like corals aren't extinct there, but they're they're quite scarce. That's that's quite incredible, particularly with something like Postulopora, which is this for anyone listening, these little branching corals that form these you know lovely little um, little colonies. Is it because um, the, it's so isolated? There's not that much connectivity to other reefs where this coral that's found you know in so many locations. How come it's not come back? I guess so, Tracy. I mean, uh, it's also got to be a really marginal environment for these corals just because it's like so cold. The water clarity is not great. Uh, another odd thing about it, it's a really weird like mixture of like, you know, fauna, uh, including like the fishes, the invertebrates, the seaweeds from like all across the Pacific. So it's like a weird mixture of both very cold water, you know, species and like warm water species. Like yeah. there's Moorish idols there. Um, that, yeah. you know, who knows, probably came in from like Hawaii or something. Huh. Um, and then like, like, like I said, there's like humpback whales and orcas, you know, like yeah. that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Why are you there? And penguins. <laughs> <laughs> right. And penguins. So like, clearly it selects for like species, individuals, populations that are tolerant of like crazy big swings in temperature yeah. that aren't like normal and like, you know, an equatorial, like shallow, shallow water environment. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's kind of a, yeah, it's a really interesting mixture. And uh, within the archipelago itself, there's a very strong like temperature gradient from like uh, east to west. So it gets colder as you go west. Uh, and then there's also a lot of like gradient gradients like in different parts of islands, like around islands. And most of it's driven by like the intensity of upwelling and also of currents, like particularly this really strong current that comes up from Peru essentially comes up from like the Arctic ocean, right? Like super cold water comes up and like smashes the Southern islands and the Southern parts of the islands. And then the equatorial undercurrent coming from the West smashes into the islands and then creates lots of upwelling. So like when you go out West, you know, the water can be five to seven degrees C colder, but it's only like a hundred kilometers away. And it's like more or less the same species. I mean, you get like some sorting, you know, of like cold water specialists and warm water specialists. Um, but that's really, I mean, that's, I guess, the main scientific justification for working there is it's like, you know, quote unquote, a natural laboratory <laughs> to study the role of temperature and ecosystem functioning, because like you more or less have like the same like biological template, but like nature is like varying temperature yeah. for you, which, you know, we don't get a lot of in like tropical systems. It's usually just so constant and like invariable. Yeah. It's amazing to think, you know, you're talking about somewhere tropical and you've got these really cold water currents coming up and making it that 
I mean, that's cold for, for people who spend a lot of time in the tropics and are particularly used to, you know, nice, warm, tropical islands. To For it to be so cold there is quite amazing. What uh, What does climate change mean for a place like that? We don't know yet. That's essentially what we're working on there. Like we're doing a lot of measuring thermal tolerance. You know, the expectation is a bit of warming would really disrupt the system, in particular if it um, somehow affects the strength of the the strength of upwelling, if it increases, uh, you know, layering of, of ocean water. So like the really productive, so, so the nutrient-rich waters kind of don't get up to the surface. Um, there's not a strong climate change signal there in terms of like a warming trend, but I think, and I've looked a lot at the records, I think it's mostly due to the fact there's so much variability including like interannual variability, like the ANSO cycle has like a massive effect on temperatures. You know, it just gets really harder to detect the signal when the noise is so great, you know? Yeah. Um, so we don't know. I mean, a lot of the seabirds have declined pretty pretty rapidly. Like blue-footed boobies have become very scarce. So a colleague of mine, Dave Anderson, um, has been doing like demographic work on blue-footed boobies. And he argues they haven't like successfully reproduced in like 15 or 20 years. So like the the remaining population is just like remnant, remnant oldsters. You know, they, they live like 30, 40, 50 years that have been around since like times were good. And so times have just been bad for decades because of like changes in oceanographic conditions and less upwelling and essentially like less, less food, less prey, forage fish for a lot of the diving seabirds. Yeah. You're uh, part of the Center for Galapagos Studies. One of the grand challenges that you guys have on your website is to foster the health and well-being of people, animals, and ecosystems. All right. How important is it that we recognize all three? Often we talk about, you know, just an animal or just an ecosystem. We, we don't always talk about those three things together. We don't. And um, when we kind of conceived of this center and we- well, it, so it's a it's a co-developed, co-managed center between um, UNC Chapel Hill, my institution, and the University of San Francisco de Quito, a private institution in, in Quito, Ecuador. And now James Cook University has also come on as a partner. So I've been working with some folks from JCU down there too. Well, we conceived of it, like first we were just thinking like Marine Lab, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just saw like all the impacts that people were having and how dependent people were on the ecosystem and just like lots of really interesting public health issues. Uh, lots of really interesting things happening with like agriculture and the terrestrial system, like, you know, invasive species, there's a big invasive papaya. And we just thought, let's just do this really differently. Let's do it like really inter in a really interdisciplinary way and truly make like the study of people, which sometimes is a little awkward, you know, like studying <laughs> people, especially yeah. like when they're, when you're like coming in from the North and arriving and study them, uh, just like a major a major core, well, core value of the institution. And it really worked, to be honest, a majority of the research is like public health, water quality kind of projects that like graduate students are doing. Um, So there's a ton of like social science and public health research going on. Um, In fact, right now, like UNC is providing the COVID vaccines for the local population and the Galapagos. There's like 35,000 inhabitants. Yeah. So like we've got like people down there and whenever they get a vaccine, they're like hold like our little mascot, like a little stuffy Mm -hmm. of our our RAM mascot. Um, So, you know, it's like PR and stuff too, like UNC doing good around the world. But yeah, I'm, I'm really psyched about how that's worked out. Yeah. You mentioned um, public health. 
And I think it's really interesting how public health and ecosystem health can often go hand in hand because particularly in islands and and remote locations where things like waste management are harder to do, land mass is less and where people are like are so connected with what's happening in the marine environment that healthy ecosystems and healthy people kind of go hand in hand. Is it the same in the Galapagos? Absolutely. I mean, we all work on, I mean, we all, we all work on like different components of it, but we view it as like this complex social ecological system with all kinds of feedbacks between the two. Um, I'm obviously focused in the ocean and, you know, there's so many ways people are dependent on the ocean. So it's a, especially on the island that we're based on, San Cristobal, it's primarily a, a fisheries-based economy. I mean, there's some tourism, but most of the families get their income from fishing and fisheries. And in the past, a lot of that came from um, fishing sea cucumbers, but they just radically overfished that. So now they're pretty much, you know, extirpated down to like 50 meters. And so people do still yeah. collect them, but it's super dangerous. You know, like they do it on hookah with like no safety, no backup. So oh. it's it's really sketchy. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people died in the 80s and 90s going after um, the sea cucumber because it's really valuable fishery. You know, it's exported to Asia, I believe, to China. Um, and now the focus is lobster and tuna and, um, uh, some kind of grouper species. And yeah, so it's just so important that they are sustainably managed. And right now mm. they really seem to be, you know, the tuna is fished only like with rod and reel, like wow. essentially like, like a the rod and reel, the tackle, the equipment that like a sports fisher would use to go out. Yeah. Um, although there's a big push to bring in long lining and, you know, we're all working really hard to kind of just work with the fishing community to explain like, you'd probably get a productivity boost, but you'd also probably like really quickly deplete the resource yeah. and then suffer the same consequences, you know, you did when the, the other fishery collapsed. So, yeah. There's a lot of um, examples from other systems, isn't there, where overfishing has caused a decline. That must really help with communicating to and working with communities on how to plan their fisheries. Yeah, I. that's a good, that we, honestly, I have not done that that much. Um, that would be good. I. There's a really interesting exchange program that used to take place between Belize and Jamaica. And they literally, they would bring Jamaican fishermen to Belize. Jamaica is much more overfished than Belize. So that the Jamaican fishermen could see like the potential of like sustainable fisheries management. Like yeah. they could catch a lot more and like their homes would be a lot nicer. Like it would improve their lives. And then the Belizean fishermen got to see what the future would hold if they didn't, you know, weren't, weren't careful with the resource. Wow. Um, so yeah, I think people, yeah. So seeing things firsthand, that, that was a really powerful example of Belizean fisherman was telling me all about that. Like, yeah, man, we go, there's like no fish there. Like their biggest fish is like a little parrot fish. And here we are still fishing like higher up the food chain for like snapper and snook and grouper and stuff. So yeah, that's really powerful. I think. Um, so understanding fisheries and, and studying food webs has been a really big part of your career. How did you get to dedicating your time and life to these kind of questions. You mean like, is this like my origin story question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what got you started? What got me started? Um, so I grew up in South Florida uh, on an estuary, like a mangrove rimmed estuary. So like a tropical environment, like a couple, a couple of K's from the beach. 
Um, so I really just grew up in that kind of environment. I grew up fishing and snorkeling and diving and surfing, you know, just completely immersed in the ocean. And I was just always like a a wildlife lover. Um, we, we moved there to South Florida in 69. I was four years old and like most of the roads were just shell still. So they weren't even paved. A lot of people were still like, you know, catching wildlife for a living, you know, catching alligators for alligator skins, like hunting and trapping were still like kind of like, you know, and fishing were like the dominant, like, you know, economic ways of like Mm -hmm. making go, making a go. Um, and of course, like that, it was just a small fish, fishing village. It's completely gone now, right? It's all been developed. It looks a lot like your Gold Coast, you yeah. know, just completely all paved over. Um, so just like growing up in that environment, I, I wasn't like a science nerd, probably because I went to just a, a really crappy school <laughs> where like science wasn't even really a thing that was taught. So with me, it was more like just wildlife and, um, I mean, even as a, a small kid, I was really into conservation, like putting up posters around my elementary school mm-hmm. about like, don't club baby seals and don't overfish tuna. So I was always like a little activist, like <laughs> kid. Um, I got thrashed one time by this huge football player. The football team was at a, a party at the beach and they all went and dug up like a sea turtle nest and they were like throwing sea turtle eggs Aww. at each other. And like, I came along and was like screaming at them, lecturing them about like, yeah. you know, they shouldn't be doing that. And of course, like I just got my ass kicked by these big guys, but yeah, I've always been like. <laughs> always happy to take the fight. Yeah, that's right. I've always been like a fighter, you know, and I, you know, I still really, that's one thing I really love about conservation science. I mean, it is a fight and you know, there's a lot of conflict. But I, I mean, it's good to have like purpose and meaning in life. I think, you know, like I would not be happy just doing, you know, basic science. Like I love science, but yeah, it gives, it just gives you a reason to kind of get up and keep going. What win are you looking for? Where do you think we can get to and say we've, we've, we've achieved some, something, you know, really, really positive? Well, I'll give you a model. So uh, you know, I told you about my hometown, you know, there's, there's more people in Florida than there are in Australia. So the <laughs> human population density is insane. And the overdevelopment is the same is insane. And yet Tracy, the wildlife is just is way, way better than it was when I was growing up in the seventies and early eighties. Wow. You know, then alligators were really scarce and then they were listed as threatened under, under the U S endangered species act, I think in 82. So they were like, you know, there was like a ban on hunting them. There was almost no wading birds. Like all the egress and herons were just really gone, mostly from uh, collecting their feathers for like, you know, plume it for hats uh, in the Northeast in like the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, um, there was no eagles, no pelicans, no ospreys from DDT, mm-hmm. um, manatees. Like I never saw a manatee growing up. Um, and now all these species are just everywhere. Like wow. the wildlife in South Florida, it's better than anywhere across the Caribbean. Um, and it's just mostly due to local protection, right? We just stopped eating things right stopped killing things and they bounce back i mean now there's manatees just everywhere you know it's just like you know inlets with big yachts going through and windsurfers and kayakers and there's just manatees popping up to drink water out of a hose next to a dock 
you know, the egrets are everywhere, bald eagles nesting in neighborhoods. So the, you know, you see this wildlife comeback is really extraordinary. And I mean, we need those kinds of examples, right? So yeah. like Nancy Knowlton's earth optimism examples that, you know, these really remarkable reversals are possible if we just stop doing really dumb shit, you know, like <laughs> polluting yeah. the environment with like things like DDT and just eating, eating long lived species that just don't have like the demographic, demographic resilience like to yeah. deal with that. Nice. So that's my model. Um, you know, I, and I, in theory, those kinds of outcomes shouldn't be too hard to implement in other places. The problem is that like in South Florida, people don't rely on eating those animals or catching and killing and selling them for their income, right? In most of the places that I work, at least, that's they do, right? They're completely dependent on that. And, you know, you understand that, sympathize with that. <laughs> yeah. And like they're really, so that's why I think it gets a lot trickier, right? It's like, how can you get people alternative sources of income yeah. and really protect the resource. Particularly when you said early on that um, fisheries export is is an option for the Galapagos as well, and I'd never really thought about export from there um, as, as, a, as a, you know, business, you know, a financial link between people and, um, and the ocean. I'd always kind of thought it was more local uh, seafoods rather than, than export. That really surprised me. Yeah, I... I don't know the numbers, but yeah, I, yeah. I believe a, a large proportion of the seafood is is exported. All right. So Tracy, I kind of sidestepped your question about like, what's my vision for success or recovery? And, yeah. you know, in, in, in coral reefs, in the context of reefs, I, I'm not sure I have one. Like I, I kind of have one for like fishes because like, you know, we know protecting fishes effectively, they can all recover. Corals, I, I how about you? Do you do you still I, hold on to like a vision that you might experience in your lifetime of like coral recovery? All all that's really working for me now is low is is really local scale places where um, where people who rely on reefs where we can help them do whatever they they can. I was actually going to ask you because in 2013 you you wrote a paper called titled coral reefs and a crystal ball and one of your last sentences in the summary was we clearly know enough to act right that was nearly 10 years ago why <laughs> that's what's getting me right is is that was 10 years ago there was papers um 20 years ago there was glenn's study in 1988 and you're talking about the Galapagos lost uh, a coral, a generalist coral, a coral that grows in so many places from 1988. I mean, we know so much now and we've known so much for so long. We've known enough to act, but we didn't fast enough. Um, and I, I guess I put that back, that question as well back to you. I mean, where do where do we go from here for coral reefs? Like I said, there's so many great advantages, um, great examples in fisheries and and other organisms coming back. But for coral reefs, what I I'm shaking my head. I don't know what twenty years looks like. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. You know, I I forget what year Oval Goldberg published that really provocative you know paper. Yeah. But I was still I was still a student, right? Yeah. So we've known this for a really long time, for a quarter century. Uh, 
You've seen it happen right in front of you in your career, right? You, you've been working in places where you've seen coral reefs collapse. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Like my baseline is like the late 70s. You know, um, I had a grandfather and grandmother who lived on a houseboat in Miami. And so they would take me down to the Florida Keys. And so like snorkeling uh, in the Keys, you know, when I was like eight, 10. And like you would just like float above like the four reef. And for kilometers, it was just like a cropera, palmata, so like a big branching staghorn yeah. coral. And it was just like, it was like flying, you know, just golden branching corals, like 100% cover as far as you could see. And I mean, that was gone, like by the time I graduated high school. So like, it, it's, it, I mean, a lot of this loss happened so long ago. I think people don't realize that, you know, people talk about like climate change being something that might affect us in the future. Like it's, yeah, it, it took a toll decades ago. You know, I know some Australian scientists up at JCU only discovered it like three years ago, right? Yeah. But most of the world has been experiencing this for so long. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, where uh, was I? Yeah. So I saw it happen. And, you know, the funny thing is like, you don't need to be a scientist, obviously, to like notice this, like my mom, my, you know, everybody's like, where the hell did the corals go? You know, like what happened? And yeah, so I've seen it happen and it's still happening. Right. So like the average coral cover, like the, the mean across the, across the Caribbean is something like 12, 13, 14%. You know, it's not too far off with the GBR is because a lot of reefs are crap, but there's like reefs also with like 30, 40, 50% coral cover. Um, but now there's a new impact, uh, stony coral tissue loss disease. Yeah. And, you know, it's just knocking those reefs down to like one or 2% coral cover, like down to numbers. Like, I, so we've been in like a stasis for like at least two decades where coral cover hasn't really changed in terms of like the regional average, you know, they've got hit with like white band disease and some bleaching and storms and other impacts. But now when this thing goes through, oh man, it just like wipes out whatever's left. It's, it's really, it's unbelievable. It's, but so what, what's my vision? Yeah. What's your vision? Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. Okay. So I, I have definitely been like a big critic of like silly interventions that are frankly you know they're just called displacement activities you know there are things that we do when we're nervous and we just have to do something you know like you know and so many things like the silly underwater pumps that are going to pump up cold water onto the gbr and space mirrors and um i i you know i used to lump restoration coral gardening into that and like, honestly, I've softened a lot over the last couple of years on restoration. So one thing that's changed my mind is really seeing in person what successful restoration could look like. So Fragments of Hope, um, led by Lisa Karn down in Belize, they've really done some impressive work in coral gardening. So it's um, not just like the Acropora, the easy ones to grow, but they're growing some like longer lived kind of massive species. And they've, you know, they've restored coral cover Tracy to like, you know, high levels, like 30 to 50%. I mean, they're small areas, right? They're like hectare scale restoration sites and they are continually getting hit with warming. So they, you know, they still bleach and die at times. Um, Like, so I don't think they're going to be like resilient to climate change forever, Um, but it's impressive. And I don't know, it's hard to put it into context because like Terry always points out, 
Like this is not, you're not going to restore the Caribbean or the GBR or like the world, right? Yeah. It's going to be really small scale endeavors. Um, I mean, at the very least, it's like a demonstration to people of like what it's, what it could look like, what it's supposed to look like. Cause just like screaming at the public that coral cover used to be 60%. Like that means nothing, right? Yeah. Like that doesn't help. They've got to see it. And most people have to see it in person for it to really impact them. So I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's the role of those efforts and maybe that's their value. The thing is though, most of them are completely ineffective. You know, there's restoration projects in Florida that have been going on for 20 years that have achieved absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. And you know, people pour millions and millions of dollars <laughs> into them. So yeah. so many of them are just becoming like for-profit boondoggles and mm. frankly, just like government greenwashing, like, you know, the Trump administration started pouring money into these things to like, quote, save the reefs where they wouldn't do for climate change, you know, on emissions. Yeah. And I just saw like Australia, Australia's new plan is to like protect mangroves. Like, that's awesome. But that's not going to solve the damn problem. Love right. Carl's, it's like yeah, coal exactly. exports are the problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's yeah. And it's hard because um, it's it, it's hard to say on one hand that we can or we can try and restore when we know that if we're not fixing the problem it's it's just heartbreak kind of waiting to happen right another big bleaching event and so many of the conversations we've had in this podcast have been well hopefully this year is not too bad or hopefully next year is not too bad or maybe if we can get through another year or two i'm still quite stunned that that we're in that conversation now like go back 5 years and and we were still kind of just touching on talking about restoration, but now we're talking about trying to do restoration in the hope that we can maybe get through each year before something big comes along again and knocks it back down again. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's some wishful thinking there, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, there's, I have complete certainty that it's just going to continue to warm and it's going to continue to get worse. Yeah. I mean, it's just simple physics and if you look at the temperature trajectories on any tropical reef over the last quarter century, it just keeps going up and up and up, you know? Yeah. Sure, you get a cool year or two when, you know, but it just, it always comes back stronger. It's amazing, like, that the La Nina years now are substantially warmer than the El Nino years of when I was a grad student, you know? And so that's like 0.71 degree C difference. Yeah. So you mentioned that you, you're surprised at how quickly this happens. I, mm. I'm also just really stunned at how quickly it happened. I first observed mass bleaching. I was working in Palau in 98 as a PhD student, um, just like helping my advisor with the side project. And right after we got there, the big El Nino hit. And, you know, we saw like all the big tabulate, acroporas bleach, and then you know, pretty much, well, a lot of other species bleached as well. And we started doing like surveys across the archipelago and it was just, you know, it was devastating. Mm -hmm. It knocked back coral cover by like, you know, 50% in absolute terms. Um, but I still had no sense that that was coming to the rest of the world. You know, we thought yeah. we, you know, we tied it so much to the El Nino. We thought it was an anomaly, you know, um, it's still so amazing. Yeah at how quickly it's all happened. I think that that's, that's what you hear from scientists and right. No matter yeah. what natural system they study, they're just like, God, this is happening so fast, you know? Yeah. And it, it's, it's now normal. Like for us, it's shocking. It's normal. And then for the next generations coming through, it's, it's completely normal. Um, I, I keep being surprised. I first 
took my daughter to a reef when she was two. She's now turned 12 and she's been on a reef and seen bleaching happen. And she, she it's, that's just normal. She'll, when she's grown up, she'll be, oh yeah, bleaching happened when I was on the, and I, that, that stops me in my tracks to think that for these kids coming through, this is what we're handing them. Yeah. That's wild, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, and it's hard to think about, well, how do we, what are the things that we can do to, to change that? Because we can't keep going the way we're going, right? We've got to find ways to turn the ship as, as quickly as we can collectively, right? Because if anything, the fact that we as, you know, humanity on the planet did this shows that we as humanity on the planet can make a huge difference, right? So then what are the steps we take? Is that a question for me? Yeah, that's a question for you. <laughs> Can you please solve the wolves' problems? Please tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, man. It's so frustrating. You know, we there, you probably heard of this idiot named Bill Gates, you know, <laughs> one of the richest people in the world, just published this book. You know, he's now, you know, apparently a climate change expert. And his thing is like, we will solve this problem with technology, right? Like, people in Silicon Valley and labs around the world will come up with tech that will solve the problem. And even um, our climate change czar here in the U.S., John Kerry, the former Secretary of State, said a few days ago, it's like, yeah, at least 50% of the emission reductions that we need, you know, to get down to like zero net emissions in the U.S. are going to have to come from tech that we haven't invented yet, Um, which is total nonsense, right? Like we already have everything we need maybe not to get to zero, but like really close to it. Right. So like just like yeah. renewables, really solar, electric cars, things like that. And so it's maddening that even like our quote smartest people, our thought leaders, the people in our government, even in an administration that's like very pro, like solving the problem, they still don't get it. So that that's yeah. become quite frustrating, you know, and a lot of American scientists are really speaking out about it just trying to push the Biden administration, just like, I mean, you know, I'd love to see more investment in like, you know, carbon capture and removal and all those kinds of things, but like, we can't rely on those things and we don't need to, right? We've already got most of what we need. I mean, we don't have planes that can fly on electric batteries yet, but you know, planes are like one to 2% of the global emissions, you know, that they're like, they're like the last thing we've got to solve, <laughs> right? We've got so many other things in front of us that we can solve tomorrow with just like, you know, a change in our electric grids, where we get our energy from, how we commute, you know, the designs of our cities. And that's that's really tangible to people anywhere they live in the world, right? You live near a city, you live remotely, wherever it is you live, that's actually, that's how we live. That's possible, right? That's not hope that someone off somewhere might solve it sometime in the future that's that's things that we can do every single day yeah we already we already have these blueprint blueprints um are you familiar with project drawdown tracy no i'm not so you should google it when we get off um so jonathan foley right now is the executive director um basically they it's like a group of academics and other like experts and they assess the efficacy of different like climate solutions different solutions to greenhouse gas emissions and you know there's uh, you know like i think they've evaluated like over a hundred and they group them in different categories like energy and agriculture and like you know social things like educating girls and women 
Yeah. Um, so that, you know, once they have economic autonomy, they can like impose, they, they can control like the reproductive output, things like that. And it's really remarkable. Like they'll model them and they rank them and you can go right onto their webpage. They have a, a booklet you can get for free and it's remarkable. It's like, yeah, we've already sorted this out. Right. It's like, and a lot of them are surprising things like silver culture, you know, like, you know, letting trees grow up in places where we, uh, where we have uh, cattle farms, um, you know, different um, uh, refrigerant pollutants. Like a lot of these things are things that you don't hear about, but they're just like, yeah, easy, easy solutions to throw at the problem. Easy, simple solutions is. Yeah. It's really neat. They, yeah. Yeah. And they're like, they're not things like ride your bike to work, which I do (laughs) ride my bike to work. I think that's awesome. You know, but like, they're not those kinds of solutions. They're really, they're mass scale. Like we need to change society. We need structural change kind of solutions. And like a lot of them depend on government, um, government support, you know, changes in policy investments, that kind of thing. But a lot of them could be implemented with, I guess, NGOs, you know, but they're, they're not necessarily like, Hey, what can you do to solve the problem? You know? Yeah. Um, you also teach a course, um, forensic seafood, 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 forensics, seafood forensics. That helps people make better choices, right? (laughs) Well, the course is a research course for undergraduates and the idea, and we've, we've revolutionized how we're teaching science and actually a lot of other topics here at Carolina. So we're rather than just like having students read about doing science in a book, we're trying to get them to actually do the science. Um, so I teach first year. So they are like really young, young students, like 18, 19 years old. They come in, they've never held a pipette. They've never been in the lab. So the first thing is like how to use a scale. Uh, we have them extract DNA in the first couple of classes. We teach them PCR. We teach them to sequence and interpret sequences to barcode. Uh, and they have to identify a mystery tissue. So mystery seafood sample. And once they have correctly done that by barcoding it, they get to design a project. And usually we design projects in small groups or in the class. And we're really focused on seafood mislabeling. Um, so in quantifying how much uh, seafood is mislabeled in different types of vendors, like grocery stores versus restaurants or different types of products like oysters or scallops or crab or you know salmon or whatnot. Um, and then they go out and collect the samples and barcode like a few hundred samples, you know, do an analysis. We teach them a bit of R. They write a paper, give a public presentation. And so the idea is to bring them from like beginning to end, like they, they we give them the skills, but then they design the project and they have to write a proposal, collect the data, you know, all the way through to like communicating the findings. So they get like kind of the whole science experience. Um, and it is such a blast to teach. It's <laughs> so much more fun to teach like that, like just doing science, like, hey, let's do some science, y'all, you know, <laughs> rather than just like lecturing at the whiteboard with PowerPoint, you know, blah, 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 memorize these factoids, kids. Yeah. Um, a lot of what you teach is like the same thing you teach to your graduate students, right? Iteration, right? Because like things never work, right? The PCR mm-hmm. doesn't work just like, like bad always happens. There's lots of failure in science. Right. And they're just like stunned at first. They're like, I failed. What, what's wrong, <laughs> Dr. Bruno? It's like, guys, I fail every day. Right. It's like failure is a critical part of science. It's like you make a mistake or the pro the procedure doesn't work. 
Like you're a molecular biologist. Yep. Like I'm sure you still fail, even though you've been doing this forever, All right? All the time. And they're kind of stunned by that, right? But then you like teach them to like iterate, to work through, try a different like temperature on your PCR. And then they, they make a breakthrough and they get there. And I think that's probably the most valuable thing that we teach them. Like just that general skill, like just iterating and problem solving. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's such a fun class to teach. Yeah. And you launched realseafood.org? Yeah. So I launched an NGO last year during COVID um, with a former master student of mine, Aaron Spencer. And so we are, rather than, we've been documenting the problem for like five years you know, we published a bunch of papers, like a third of the shrimps. What do y'all call shrimp in Australia? Prawns. You've got to have a, a slang name. I don't know, just prawns. prawns. <laughs> just prawns? Yeah. Okay. All right. A third of the of them that are sold, like we have this big prawn fishery here along our coast in our estuaries. A third that are sold like local, fresh, um, are actually uh, a white leg shrimp, which is a Pacific species. Like, obviously, doesn't even yeah. exist in the Atlantic Ocean, and it's a species that's farmed. So very likely, it's like farmed in Ecuador, the Philippines, yeah. frozen, maybe sat in a warehouse in Atlanta for a couple years. Eventually, oh. makes its way to like the seafood vendor. It's thawed out, and they sell it for like eighteen dollars a pound. You know? oh. And Things like red snapper is almost always tilapia. You know, sometimes stingray wing. Uh, sorry, scallops are really stingray stingray wing. So it's a big problem. Jeez. But like just documenting it, documenting it hasn't solved it, right? Yeah. Which is like true of so many of these these impacts. So our our solution is to certify restaurants and markets that are accurately labeling their seafood so like the students go like form a relationship with with a chef or a, a restaurant owner and then they go in each week and get a little sample of all their products and they barcode it and if at the end of like three months everything is accurately labeled they get like a big sticker to put on their door and we put their name on our website so we want to like both like build awareness like build customer demand for that because uh, yeah. you know people want to know yeah once they hear about it well, well where do where do i go to get accurately labeled seafood and then to like provide an incentive for vendors to like actually do that that's fantastic that's nice that linking student science and uh tangible ac- outcome locally that people want people want to do the right thing thanks yeah that's fantastic they do John, take home message for anyone listening today. What can they go out and do to make a better future? Marine systems. Okay. What can people do to change the world? Number one thing, at least if you live in a democracy, vote, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the most powerful way you can change policy is to vote and even better to get involved in political action. You know, volunteer for campaigns, knock on doors, call people. If you have the means, like make donations, you know, or run for office. It's so cool how many young people, young women, young women of color are running for office in like local local campaigns all across the U.S., you know, like towns, counties, states at the state level. You know, that. That's, I think, how the biggest way you can really make a difference is to like change policy. That's fantastic. And how can people follow what you're doing and all of your really cool work, particularly in the Galapagos? Because I want to be able to follow that too. <laughs> I'm having trouble answering that because, <laughs> well, in, 
some some days y'all can follow me on Twitter uh, at John F. Bruno, but I am trying so hard to leave Twitter. I usually mm. stay off for a couple of weeks and then I go back. It's just like so bad for me. It's so bad for my soul. <laughs> it brings yeah. out the worst in me. It yeah. really does. It brings out the worst in me. And yeah. And so sadly, I, I might not be there forever. Um, you know, I used to blog a lot and I got so much out of that. Um, so maybe I'll go back to blogging. Nice. I will definitely keep an, an eye out for it. And I really, I really, really hope to one day get to the Galapagos and see a penguin next to a coral. I have to see that. <laughs> I'd love to have you there. I guess you'll be free to travel in like 2027, you yes, think? Yes, something like that <laughs> in a couple of years. You just have to send us photos. When are you heading there next? Next Friday. I'm going for a month next Friday. Oh, nice. That's fantastic. Have a wonderful trip and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was my pleasure. It was so nice to talk to you, Tracy. Thank you for listening to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. Don't forget to check out our website at events.unsw.edu.au where you'll find all the photographs from this podcast series featuring the beautiful places that we've been discussing and the organisms found in these blue spaces. 